remember at one particular church I was at, we got in the habit of taking a spring break ski trip. And one year, we had a bunch of youth. I was driving a van with youth, and we got to Colorado, and we turned them loose on the slopes. And there was one particular slope that was mostly a blue, which is kind of medium level, but it had a green that connected to uh, blues, and it was pretty flat. And I remember you had to get good speed going before you got to that green or else you'd kind of stall out and you had to use your ski poles and it just wasn't very fun. And so I had been skiing and it was first day and then we got to the second day and by the, the third day, which was our final day, some of the youth had started getting kind of bored. They were ready to go, ready to do something else. And I was going down like I had many times this one particular slope, and I got to the part where it went from the blue to a green, and I didn't have enough speed, and I stalled out. And so I'm trying to get going on this flat green slope and trying to get to the next one down, and I start getting pelted with snowballs at the side of the head. I'm thinking, what is going on? And I couldn't tell where they were coming from at first, because there was just this slope to my left that went up pretty fast, and I was on a flat spot right here. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw something black little hoodie that one of the youth had on. And what they had done is they had built a fortress. They'd built a stronghold of snow in the side of the mountain. And they were hiding behind a snow wall that blended into the mountain. And they were throwing snowballs at people that were doing what I just did, which was get stuck in that slow spot. So they had set up an ambush point and they were hiding behind that snow wall. And they thought that they were safe in their stronghold. Well, I kicked my skis off and went charging up the mountain and just dove full body into their stronghold and, and wrecked it and kicked it over and went back to skiing. And it was all in good fun. Those were guys I had a good relationship with, and we were just boys being boys. But what was so funny was later in the day when I went back through, they were there trying to rebuild their stronghold again. They hadn't learned their lesson. All it took was one person to just tear it down. The Bible says that in our lives, there are times where we develop strongholds. They, they are things that are part of our fleshly thinking, and they need to be torn down. They need to be torn down in order for us to live the life that Christ has indwelt us to live. And so today, we're going to ask three questions, three questions, and we'll answer those three questions today. That is this, what is a stronghold? That's the first question. I've titled today's sermon Strongholds, but first of all, the three questions, what is a stronghold? Number two, how do I overcome it? And then number three, why should I care? Why do I even deal with it at all? So that's what we're going to answer as we go about our sermon today, and I've titled today's sermon Strongholds, and we'll be in Colossians 3, verses 7 through 11, it's where we left off. Last week, if you're a guest with us, we're going through a sermon series titled Jesus First. We're going through the book of Colossians verse by verse. We left off at verse 6 last week. And what I'd like to do is read verses 4 through 6 as a way of getting a running start into our passage today. So let's look at Colossians chapter 3. Hopefully you've had time to turn there. We're going to, like I said, read verses 4 through 6, and then we'll get into our passage for today. When Christ, who is our life, appears, 
then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which were on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So what we looked at last week as we were dealing with these issues of personal sin, we saw that we have this great promise in verse 4 that Jesus is going to return. Jesus, who is our life, is going to return. And when Jesus, who is our life, returns, we will appear with him in glory. What an amazing promise that verse 4 is. And then there is the command of verse 5 that is in light of these promises that we've been given, therefore put to death the sin in your life. And you find that repeatedly in Scripture that when in the New Testament they talk about the return of Christ, it usually also is directly linked to how we should be living now. Making us think of all of those parables that Jesus told, like the parable of the master that goes away on a long journey and he gives things to his servants and his expectation is that his servants will be faithful so that when he returns, he'll find them diligent, working, doing what they were left to do. And so with us, in light of the fact that Jesus is going to return one day, here is how we should live and we should be putting to death. We should be dealing with personal sin. Also, he gives a second reason. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Now, verse 7, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. What an interesting verse. He's saying all these sins that I just lived, that used to be you. You used to do those things. But now that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, they have no place in your life. In your heart, in your desires, in your thinking, in your actions, and whatever it may be, he's saying now that you're in Christ, these have nothing to do with your life. Put it to death. That's the command of Scripture. Isn't that interesting that he's writing to them saying, hey, you were once this way. One of the reasons why I love that verse is because I think sometimes, and especially if you're a guest with us here today, there's a misunderstanding that church, first of all, is a Sunday morning worship service. This is not church, what's happening right now. You are the church. You are the body of Christ. You, the church, is the living body of Christ. And one of the things that grates against me as a pastor is that we condense the Christian life, we condense church to what takes place in a Sunday morning worship service. That is wrong-headed thinking. You are the church. You are the living body of Christ. And what that means is that, look, there's not an entrance exam for someone to come in here and worship with us on a Sunday morning. You don't have to get your life cleaned up to then come in and worship. In fact, I would love it if people that were deep and lost in sin came walking through the doors and said, I want to know what's going on here. Because right here, what's happening right now, this service is not the church. You're the church, and what you're supposed to be doing is reaching the lost. So that other people who were doing those things can now say, I don't do that anymore because now I know Jesus. You with me on that? I know I get a little fired up about that. It's okay. We all need a little fire right now and then. In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now, but now you yourselves are to put off these things. And then he goes into all that. But before we go into verses 8 and 9, I want to talk about verse 7 for just a minute. 
How do we change? How do we see this change take place where we're not in those things anymore, but we're truly different? I read one great quote on this. It says, the same one, that's Jesus, who makes this new birth possible also makes a new standard of life possible. You see, you can't live the way God's called you to live apart from God indwelling you. It is Christ living through you that lives this new life. And that's the joy of being a believer is that it's not only that Christ gives me life, it's that as Christ is now my life, Christ empowers me, Christ lives through me, Christ lives the life that he once lived in me. And it's something that I could never accomplish in and of my own strength. But why don't we just automatically do that? Why when we become a Christian, why when we put our faith in Christ, don't we automatically just, like a car wash, right? An express car wash. Why don't you get to just go through a car wash? You know, you, you put your faith in Christ. You're praying to put your faith in Christ. You're receiving his spirit. Why isn't it just kind of like that express car wash service where you come out squeaky and clean and, you know, no problems? Well, it is and it isn't. What do I mean by that? Well, what do we do with the fact that we still sin? Here's another great quote I found this week. It says, the old self and the new self are never described as coexisting in anyone. One replaces the other. Finally, the old self is never a proper description of the believer. A believer is a totally new person. The believer will sin, but that is not attributed to the old self. Sin happens because of the imperfect process of growth in the new self. So when you put your faith in Christ, God associates you with the death of Christ, which we've already looked at. You have died to sin. You have been buried with Christ. Now you have a new life. The old self is done. You are now a new creation. But you're a new creation that still lives in a body with flesh. You're still a new creation that has the temptations from the world. You're still a new creation that has Satan that that knows your weakness and wants to push on all those doors. So how do we overcome this? How do we deal with this? John MacArthur, one more quote, and then I'll get off these quotes. He said this, The question that arises as to why believers sin if the old self is gone is this, They do so because the new self lives in the old body. And must contend with the flesh. Paul shows us this in the conflict described in Romans 7. The presence of the unredeemed flesh causes us to groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. So even though I'm a new creation, I still have to deal with my flesh. I still have to learn day by day to yield to Christ. And the great promise of God is there's coming a day when even this flesh is going to be renewed and I'm going to receive a resurrected body and I'm not going to have to deal with myself anymore. (laughs) Some days I get tired of myself. And the hope of heaven is one day I'm not going to have to deal with myself anymore because even my flesh is going to be redeemed and I'm going to get a resurrected body. Isn't that great news? Isn't that something to look forward to? But we still have to deal with ourselves today, right? So how do we do this? We still haven't answered the first question. I'm about to get there. First question, we're front-loading a lot, and then the last two are going to go quick. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 for just a minute. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. And he gives us another list of sins. And you're thinking, well, I haven't dealt with the ones from last week. Well, too bad. It's here. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. We are commanded to put off these things, just like to put to death earlier. 
But how do we do that? Well, let's understand what these things are, and then we're going to understand how to do it. When he says anger, that is a state of relatively strong displeasure. You don't like something. You're angry with something. It has an emotional um, emphasis. Wrath, that's the next one. That's a deeper sense of displeasure. The Greeks likened wrath to straw that when it was lit on fire, flamed up really quickly. And I think that he's giving these things in some sort of an anger, some sort of an order of first there's anger, and if anger is left, then it turns to wrath. And then if you continue on malice, that's when you just get to where you have a mean spirit or a mean disposition to somebody, and you've decided someone else is your enemy, and you're going to do whatever you can to, to get them, to always have the advantage over them, to get back at them. You see kind of the progression there from anger to wrath to malice. And then he deals with issues of the, the tongue. He says blasphemy, and this can be about God, but really it's speaking more about others we see from context. It's speech that disrespects and puts others down. And then filthy language, we're to put that off. That's a kind of speech that's generally considered just in poor taste, obscene speech, dirty talk. And then he says in verse 9, and do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with its deeds. Don't lie. And I think, again, there's some sort of, uh, some sort of a, a progression there. Um, maybe not as much as the first three, but we see that they all deal with issues of the heart. And Jesus said it's out of the overflow of the heart these things come. That speech that's coming out of your mouth is this way. It's really pointing to what's going on in your heart. The anger, the wrath, the malice that comes out, it's pointing to issues of your heart. So let's just take one, for example, and we're going to begin to apply it here. Let's just take anger and use that as our example. There are some things that you should be angry about, that it would be right to be angry about. If you have a child that you love, or a family member, or a friend, somebody that you really deeply care about, and you love this person, and you see them doing something that is harmful to themselves, it is very natural, it is actually very loving for you to be angry about that. That in love you're going, I hate that this is taking place in their life. I, I'm angry that that is the direction that they're going. Because you love them. You want something better for them when they're, than what they're in. Most of our anger is not that way. That's why Paul is addressing it. Most of our anger is not because we're really concerned about somebody else. It's just we're ticked off and we're mad. It's self-motivated. It's self-driven. It's coming out of self. I've even seen plenty of people that try to justify their anger by blaming it on God. Well, God hates this. This is righteous indignation. No, it's you being extremely fleshly. <laughs> Most of our anger is self-motivated and self-driven. So how do we deal with it? How do we deal with it? John MacArthur said it this way, provocations do not create his anger, but merely reveal that he is an angry person and give him a target for his fury. Did you get that? When we get anger, when we get angry and it's coming out of us, it's not that that situation is causing us to be angry. It's that that anger was already in our heart, and now we just have something to aim it at. Did you get that? That's why Paul can even list these as sins to put away. Why would he list something that was out of your control to put away from yourself? Why would he do that? It would be impossible for us to obey. 
But when he says, put these things away, that must mean, oh, these things begin in my heart. And so there's some responsibility to deal with that. So again, the question, what is a stronghold? I know I've been dragging you on here with this, but let's read one other passage and then I'm going to answer it. What is a stronghold? Let's read 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6, and then we're going to answer what a stronghold is. It's very important for you to understand this. I know I've given you a lot up front to set this up. But really what I'm doing, and you'll see this by the end of the sermon, from the sermon last week and what we're doing today, is I'm actually teaching you how to fight spiritual warfare through these sermons. I'm giving you tools, and I'm showing you how to fight a spiritual battle. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. There's a whole sermon just on that verse. Amen? How many of our problems do we try to solve by our own means, human means, by the flesh? Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of what? Of strongholds. What is a stronghold? Verse 5 clarifies what a stronghold is. Casting down arguments. It has to do with the mind. It has to do with thinking. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Oh, okay, so I begin to understand. A stronghold is some sort of thinking that is exalting itself against the knowledge of God. And I can tear that down in Christ. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So with Colossians 3 and 2 Corinthians 10 to define a stronghold, this is one way to define it, not the only way. Helps me. A stronghold is a fleshly pattern of thinking that is in opposition to God. A fleshly pattern of thinking that is in opposition to God. And here's the danger of a stronghold for the believer. A stronghold is this. It's something that because it is a pattern of your thinking, you most likely don't even know it's there. That's the danger of it. You don't realize how much anger has taken over your heart. You don't realize how much lust has taken over your heart. You don't realize how much lying has taken over your life because it's such a pattern in your thinking and in your behavior now. It's just kind of what you do. And we need God to reveal the stronghold and to then, by his grace, to tear it down. So back to the list, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, and lying, they actually point to the sinful conditions of our own hearts. Do you notice what Paul doesn't say? He doesn't say, put these things away from you, unless somebody, you know, cuts you off in traffic, then it's okay. Unless somebody violates your rights, then it's okay. He does not give us any mulligans on this, any caveats, any, well, but if this happens, then you're okay to be bitter. He doesn't do that. He says, put these things off. This has to do with your heart. Again, what MacArthur said, provocations don't create his anger, but merely reveal that he is an angry person and give him a target for his fury. I got to tell you, man, I, that hit me right between the eyes this week. It is so easy in the busyness of life to get frustrated, isn't it? Can we all just be real about that for a minute? When we have stuff going on with our family, when we have the stress of what's going on in our country, 
when we have sickness, when we have things going on, the stress of life, and then all of a sudden you find yourself snapping at people or being angry. And what do you do? Well, I just have all this stuff on me that's making me angry. No, you have anger in your heart that that stuff is squeezing you and showing. Do you see the difference? And so what God is saying is, you need to be squeezed because you're currently blind to these strongholds. But if you'll admit it and then confess it when it's revealed, when its ugly head is finally seen, then through God's grace, you can actually deal with it. You can be free of it. You see, that's the hope of Christ. So that brings us to our second question. How do I overcome it? Right? I mean, it doesn't do any good to know it's there if I can't overcome it. Well, yeah, look at, you know, what a sorry sucker I am. I guess that's just how I'm going to live. That is not what Christ died for. Christ died for you to move beyond these strongholds. to know freedom from it. How do I overcome it? Well, again, Colossians 3. Let's pick back up at verse 9. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. And put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. There are four big things to focus on in these two verses. First of all, put off the old man. Put on the new man. Being renewed. And it has to do with being renewed in the knowledge of God. Now, let me explain it to you this way. The old man was put off when you put your faith in Christ. A prayer does not save you. Faith in Jesus saves you. But we express that faith through prayer. So as I pray and I say, Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that you have died for me, that you have risen from the grave, and I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins, to save me, that as I confess that faith, as I call out to Jesus, then I am put to death. I'm dead. I identify with the death of Christ. My sins have died. I have died to sins. I've died with Christ. That's what the Bible says. We covered that in previous weeks. And then, now, God's Spirit fills me, and I have life in Jesus. And the only life that I have now is in Jesus. That's what baptism symbolizes, that I've been crucified with Christ. I've died, and now I'm alive. But the only life that I have now is because of Jesus. Okay? Now, how do I live that life? How do I overcome sin in this new life? It's by being renewed in my mind. It is a daily process of changing my thinking, of addressing strongholds, of allowing that Holy Spirit to do His work in my life. Big theological term we use for that is sanctification. It's being renewed. It's being sanctified. It's becoming more like Jesus each day. But how do I really do it? How do I get this stronghold off? How do I have victory over it? Well, look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, and then I'm going to give you the answer. And I'm going to really illustrate it. Those of you that really like application, we're going to get extremely practical in just a minute, and then we'll be done. Romans 12, this is a passage that you know really well, but I think in light of the discussion that we're having here, it'll come to life in a new way. How do I overcome strongholds? Look at Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, get over yourself. Realize you are dead. It's not about you. It is about Jesus. So daily die. Die daily to self. Live for Christ. Verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. 
It sounds like Colossians 3, doesn't it? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Listen, my friends, we've, <laughs> I've told this so many times, I'm not going to repeat this. The battles of the mind. It's a truth encounter, okay? Do you believe God's word or not? So how do you overcome strongholds? Here it is. Starve it and replace it with the truth. How do you over... If you're here this morning and as I'm talking, God's revealing a stronghold to you, or you already knew coming into it that there was some wrong-headed thinking, that there were things in your mind that are in opposition to God's word, there's a stronghold in your life. And you're going, okay, I already know I have one. Just tell me how to get over it. Okay, first of all, it's not going to happen in a day. Now, there are times where God can just rip it, even something out of our life and change our desires. But most of the time, it is a day-by-day process, day-by-day, one day at a time, where you are retraining the way you think to think in light of the knowledge of God. What you need to do is you first starve that stronghold, but then you have to replace it because nature abhors a vacuum. You can't just do away with it. You have to fill it with something. So here's the, here it is. Let me picture it for you. Let me, we're going to take our anger illustration. I'm going to give you a very specific way to do this. Let's say that someone has done something to you that is wrong. It is unjust. It is not right. You have been wronged. That has taken place. Okay? Not excusing it. I'm just telling you how to deal with it correctly. Where a stronghold is not in your heart. Or maybe a stronghold's been revealed through somebody doing you wrong. And now you know you have to deal with it. Here it is. Let's say that somebody's wronged you and you replay it in your head. Did you hear me? You replay what they've done to you in your head. What are you doing when you do that? You're feeding the stronghold. It's the first thing, anger. Anger. I can't believe that. You're just replaying. It's going over and over in your mind. You are feeding the flesh. You're feeding the stronghold. Next step, you get hung up on your rights that have been violated. Well, I don't deserve that. I deserve this. They shouldn't have done that. I should get this. There's a lot of I in that kind of thinking, isn't it? That's going from anger to wrath. It's that fire that's just burning. You're feeding it. You're just feeding it. You know what happens next? Well, I'm going to plan my revenge. Next time I see them, if they do that to me, I'm going to go off on them. That's malice. You're just feeding the stronghold. Are, are we honest enough to realize that in our own thinking, we just feed the flesh? I mean, I'm just using anger as an example. You can use any of the list of sins, but that's our th- thinking process. That's what we do. Do you see how it's taking place in the mind, in the thinking? So how do I overcome it? Well, instead of replaying it in your head, here's what you do. Instead of choosing to replay it in your head, or when it starts to, to want you to replay it in your head, you go, God, I thank you that you have removed my sins as far as the east is from the west, and you don't remember my sins anymore. You see, instead of replaying somebody else's sins, you quote scripture to your flesh, and you are reminded that you have been forgiven of much, and that God does not bring up your sins. Instead of asserting your rights and feeding that, you say, God, I have no rights. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I can't be offended because I'm dead. 
I have no rights. Jesus, you live your life through me. You see, you starve it, and then you replace it with truth. And instead of planning your revenge, you actually trust God. You say, God, you see it, you know it. God, you are just. I trust you to do what is right. You starve it, and then you replace it with the truth. And if you will settle into that pattern of thinking, that is renewing yourself according to the knowledge of God. And you will be a different person. And the next time you get squeezed, it won't be all that anger coming out. It will be thanksgiving for what God has done in your heart. Now, lastly, why should I care? Because this is a battle. It's a fight to change your thinking, to adjust how you handle things, to be humble, to acknowledge our need to wait on God. It is a choice to make. It is a battle at times. So why should I care enough to fight it? Our final two verses, Colossians 3, verses 11 through 12. He's talking about uh, being renewed in the spirit of our mind according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, Uh, But Christ, uh, you know what, not verse 12, we're just going to focus on verse 11, excuse me. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and what? In all. That one little phrase, Christ is all. Is Christ all to you? Well, yeah, I'm at church. Well, that doesn't mean Christ is your all. Well, yeah, I'm teaching Sunday school. That's not what I'm talking about. Is Christ your all? In your heart alone, with nobody else around, is Christ your all? The answer to why should I care is this. Because Jesus is the new standard for the believer. Why should I care enough to fight it? Why should I not give up and give in to sin? Why should I renew my mind with God's word? Why should I care about personal holiness? Because Christ is all. Because if you know Jesus, he is the new standard. You may be thinking, I don't quite follow you. Well, the old man did it this way. The new man does it a new way. Christ is the new standard for the new man. And here's the thing, listen. I realize this is a serious message. This is a heavy text. If knowing Jesus does not motivate you enough to personal holiness, you don't know him very well. I'm going to say that again. If knowing Jesus does not motivate you to personal holiness, you do not know him very well. And I don't mean that as a slam. I mean that as absolute truth. Because Jesus is holy. And he says, come walk with me and be holy. And if knowing him and seeing him in his beauty and seeing him in his holiness and understanding his grace, if I can look at the face of Jesus, so to say, and then just be okay with my sin, I haven't really seen him very good. I remember when I um, was in college and I hadn't yet surrendered to ministry 
but God was really drawing me, and it was heavy, and I didn't even realize what all God was doing. And I was going to a Tuesday night singles and in college Bible study, and they brought this guy in that was leading the music, and we had preaching, and and man, God was just all over me that night. And 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 y'all know sometimes I tell illustrations where I totally get it wrong, so I'm not the hero of every story, okay? But this night, God was just really, really moving. And I went down at the invitation. In fact, it, there were steps much like this. And I went over on the corner, off to the side. And as the song was playing, all I could say to God, all I could get out of my mouth was thank you. And I just kept saying thank you over and over again. And what God was doing was God was showing me all the ways he had been gracious to me in my life. God was showing me all the ways that he had borne with me in my rebellion. God was showing me all the things that he had blessed me and done for me that I hadn't ever acknowledged. God was showing me the way he had saved me and how he had delivered me and how he had cared for me. When I was so focused on all the things I didn't have, he was showing me all the things that he had blessed me with. And all I could do in that experience in the presence of Jesus was just over and over again to say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. You see, when you get in the presence of Christ, you will care. You will care. Maybe some of you this morning say, well, I'm not even a believer. There's no way for me to live like that. You're absolutely right. (laughs) You have no power to live the life that Christ has called you to live because you're not his yet. But the hope is that Christ has died and he has risen. He is returning one day. And as long as he hasn't returned yet, then the opportunity, the invitation is still open to you to look to him that you might live. To turn from your way and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I close with this. Everybody is a believer in one sense. We use the term believer to refer to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. So we just shorten it to say a believer, a believer in Jesus Christ. But every single person in this room, whether you believe in Jesus Christ, is a believer in another sense. You're believing in yourself to make life work. You're believing in your job to give you significance. You're believing in other things other than Christ. But there is no one here that is living life apart from faith in something. If you're honest about the actions you take day by day by day, it is built on faith. You're trusting someone or something you believe in will get you through this life. To become a Christian is this. It is to look at all of the things that are less than Jesus and to repent. That means to turn away from them and say, now Jesus, I'm putting all of my faith upon you. To forgive me of my sins, yes, but to do so much more. To save me, yes, but to do so much more. To fill me with your spirit and now to come live your life through me that when you return one day, I can rejoice because I am ready for my master's return. So if you've never put your faith in Christ, that's what I want to encourage you to do today is to turn from all the other things you're trusting in and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. He will by no means turn you away. Man, it's a heavy subject when we deal with issues of sin and holiness, isn't it? But God's Word happens to deal with it quite a bit, so I guess we should as well. 
Would you please join me in a, in a word of prayer to close out our service today? I'm going to bow my head and close my eyes. It's just a way of focusing in on God's presence. I invite you to do the same. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus to be saved, become a child of God, would you just tell God what's in your heart today? If, if you believe the things that I've said about Jesus are true, tell him. Tell, tell God, tell God that... God, I believe that I, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I can't save myself. But you've sent Jesus to save me. I believe that Jesus died for me, that he rose again from the grave. I believe because of Jesus, you will forgive me. You will fill me with your spirit. You will come live your life through me. So please save me now. Thank you for hearing my prayer. And maybe you're here today and you're already a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're a Christian, but God has just stirred your heart and you're already realizing there are some strongholds that need to come down. Lord Jesus, may we get a, a fresh view of you to energize us to even get us excited about the fact that we can fight, that we can be renewed, that we can be changed. It's all about you, it's all for you, and it's all because of you. And Lord, may we be a people of holiness unto you. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.